Hello and welcome to Insights, the podcast from the Cork University Business School, bringing you some of the most topical and informative research from Cubs that is making an impact not just in Cork, Munster and Ireland, but beyond. I'm Anthony MacDonald, Head of the Department of Management and Marketing, and in this week's episode, we turn our attention to the future of work. Asking, are the robots taking over? What will our future jobs look like? The gig economy? And so forth. To help answer some of these questions, I'm joined by Dr. Ronan Carberry, Senior Lecturer in Management and Co-Director of the HR Research Centre, Dr. Alton Sherman, Lecturer in Management, and James Duggan, who is an Irish Research Council postgraduate researcher here in Cubs. So Ronan, the future of work has become a major topic of conversation. Business disruption, work disruption is talked about a lot. For example, there's been major claims about good and bad news around um, the rise of technology. So the bad news is that the next three years, automation could displace up to 75 million jobs worldwide. The good news is that automation could create in excess of 133 million new jobs. Can we believe such estimates? If you look at the the, the data that you're referring to, uh, a McKinsey study in 2017 found that only 5% of jobs in the US could be fully automated, uh, but that about 60% of jobs could be partly automated. So there is there is challenges there, but it's not going to mean that human work is going to disappear. It's hopefully will mean that it will become more productive. So, for example, if you look at the introduction of ATM machines in the 1970s, there was fears then that bank clerks would become obsolete. But what actually ended up happening was that while... Uh, some some jobs did become obsolete uh, and fewer tellers were employed at individual banks. It actually allowed more banks to, to open uh, and therefore uh, there was more bank branches and therefore there was greater uh, employment overall due to ATM-related savings. New technological advancements have, all, have always nece- necessitated, uh, I, I suppose, a certain amount of reflection. So if you look at Apple here in Cork, so in 1996, Apple recognised that there was, not, there was not going to be any future in Cork for what they termed uh, brawn manufacturing or hands-on manufacturing. Uh, and they saw that the future was going to be in, and in their terminology they called it, brain manufacturing, this high-value manufacturing. Uh, at the time, they employed over approximately 1,500 staff. And in making that transition, they actually had to reduce their workforce to 450. But now today, they, in Ireland, they employ over 6,000 people, uh, most of those in Cork, because what they have done is, they, what they looked at, they looked at, well, what skills had the staff in Cork actually acquired in the previous 20 years prior to 1996? And they found that they had a huge amount of R&D and customer service skills. And now they're the main centre for AppleCare in Cork. They're the, one of the main centres, sorry, in Europe. They're the, one of the main centres in Europe also for research and development. So they're... Uh, So there's huge opportunities here in the future, but it is going to necessitate a certain amount of reflection as to what skills people currently have and what skills they're going to need to ensure that they remain employable in the future. Okay, so the robots are not necessarily coming to get us, but there there will be some jobs that potentially will be altered and even maybe automated, and equally there will be the potential, I suppose, to move up this idea of the, the corporate value chain, which I guess traditionally Ireland over the last 20 years in terms of industrial policy has been looking to move up the, the value chain in terms of activities, and we've seen, the I suppose, the erosion of low-skill manufacturing. So is Ireland well-placed, do you think, to take advantage of this automation and where um, industry is going? going and and is Ireland how is Ireland cope going to cope with the rise of automation yeah I think there's some 
I suppose there's some interesting contextual factors here that we need to consider. So just last week, uh, the the head of skills at the Higher Education Authority in Ireland, uh, she was discussing a soon-to-be-released report on career guidance uh, and career choices. So she identified that it's actually parents, and in particular primarily mothers, uh, who are the biggest influences on their children's career choices. Uh, so it is important then that parents are familiar with the, I suppose, how the world of work is changing and, and these shifts that you that you referenced because they play a central role in their children's career choices. So I suppose work needs to be done in communication with parents uh, how how the workforce is changing, what's going to be required for students then in the future as well, uh, and I suppose one of the things that challenges that I would see people are going to be living longer. Uh, so those starting into their careers today can expect to be working well into their 70s. And if you look at the the average life expectancy of someone in Ireland today, it's, it's around 82 years of age. But the the retirement age of 65, which has traditionally been the retirement age, that was originally proposed in the late 1880s in Germany. So people are living much longer now than was previously the case. And I suppose one of the things that we may want to consider in Ireland is that like, the government may want to consider giving tax breaks to workers to help them engage in lifelong learning, uh, to, uh, to engage in continual upskilling and to be able to adapt uh, to, the, to changes in the workplace. Is there a danger that we could end up back at a dot-com issue where, you know, we saw everybody was saying you have to go into IT, you have to be a programmer, do software, next thing the market went belly up and there was nobody going into that for a while and then they were struggling with skill shortages in terms of <clears throat> is there is there this issue still with, you know, this is very popular, there's a lot of buzzwords here and I guess even us, we're looking at our programmes in terms of putting in digital analytics is becoming more popular. Where is the balance and I guess that piece of, you know, the influences on the next set of students and graduates um, can be very superficial. Yeah, and that's true. So science and technology, the STEM areas, they're often held up with, as the areas where new jobs are being created and there's a huge uh, focus now, obviously, at a, at, a, at, a, at a national level of this. But it's interesting that a lot of the evidence from the US in particular doesn't, doesn't support that. So the occupations with the highest levels of growth in America in recent years are those where technical and interpersonal skills are required, so teaching, healthcare, management. So I think what's really going to be able to distinguish and differentiate uh, people's employability in the future is the ability to be creative, to be innovative, uh, being able to connect with other people, be engage, to engage in out-of-the-box thinking, uh, be adaptable, uh, to quickly uh, adapt to, to new problems, come up with new solutions. That's something that, that technology will never be able to replicate. So the, so, the, the rise of the so-called so soft skills ultimately, which are I think, in my view, are the harder skills to, to learn and develop um, are, I suppose, are becoming more important. So maybe turning to you then, Alton, in terms of looking at the what, what is the future workplace going to like, considering some of these developments around technology and automation? Yeah, I, I think um, Ronan touched on it in his piece. Um, the starting point of any discussion really about the future uh, is acknowledging that humans are notoriously terrible at predicting the future. Um, there's loads of very famous examples over the years of organizations trying to predict the future. Uh, one I came across recently is the US Army in the 60s and their Project Horizon, trying to colonize the moon in the next seven years. So they wanted to have a couple of hundred people living on the moon by 1967. And they invested millions in that particular project and it obviously didn't work. Um, 
So I think the danger is, is that we kind of over-egg the changes or we kind of have a kind of a very dramatic view of how different the workplace is going to be. Um, and psychologists and economists are actually trying to find out why are we so bad at predicting the future. Um, and actually, um, Daniel Kahneman, who is a psychologist and an economist, he won the Nobel Prize uh, for his research on um, decision-making. He said one of the reasons why we are so bad at predicting the future is because we're overly reliant on the present. And we tend to make we, we tend to rely on uh, things that we can see uh, every day when we're actually making predictions about the future. And he called this this uh, availability heuristic. So we tend to be, we have a bias towards focusing on the present when we're actually trying to predict the future. Um, uh, another way as well is that we tend to underestimate that we'll be able to cope uh, with all these changes that, that will take place in the future. Most people tend to cope quite well with changes. So that's a kind of a good starting point as well, is that whatever the changes do come, most of us will be able to deal with them. I do think one definite area and this is my bold prediction i'm probably going to be wrong but one definite area i think that will change in the next 10 15 years in terms of the future of work is that most organizations are trying to work more efficiently this idea of smarter working and we can actually see that today there's numerous examples of organizations now reducing the five-day week to a four-day week um, and this idea of having a shorter week it makes the organization more efficient. The employees are more efficient. Um, a company called Perpetual Guardian in New Zealand, they are uh, an estate planning and will management uh, type of organization. They had they reduced their working week to a four-day working week, and their CEO said there was absolutely no jawbacks whatsoever. They thought it was a fantastic idea, and for the f foreseeable future, they're going to have a four-day working week. So I do think efficiency and smarter working is going to be a big area uh, in the workplace in the next 10 to 15 15 years and there's like I think there's going to be quite a number of changes uh, in those areas so the four-day work week there's been a bit of discussion about that um is that really smarter working or is that going to be intensification of work so essentially get it all get it all done work harder um but you can get the day off well not necessarily it's about how it's managed it's how it's delivered uh it's about supporting your employees that they make that they do work efficiently it's training your employees to make sure that they are more efficient workers we can't just say look you're doing you're now doing a four-day week so you have to do your 10-hour days as opposed to your eight-hour days it's actually training your staff to make sure that they are more efficient trying to identify those areas where there are drag or where people aren't working hard or people aren't you know you know achieving any output so i think it's about training and communication and it's obviously the, a big emphasis then on the role of the leader as well he or she actually communicating these changes to the staff so i guess there is a key pointer and then in organizations where you know what what is enough for a job in terms of getting roles properly um looked at in terms of you know job specs and so forth are accurate and, and appropriate and fair for the level of work yeah and i think that's a danger as well today is that sometimes jobs that we see in 2018 2019 the job specs were written five six seven eight years ago and they haven't changed so i mean job specifications job descriptions are all this our whole concept of um analyzing jobs they need to be updated because their changes being introduced so quickly our concept of how to do a job and how and how to do it how to do it effectively that needs to be updated and constantly updated as well. So I I, I would agree with that point. In terms of maybe um, James, what is there any other aspects that you think in terms of where the future workplace is going and some of the key challenges or factors that are impacting work? 
Sure. Yeah. So I, I suppose to, to touch on what what both Ronan and, and Alton have said there, like it, it is fair to say that the discussion around the future of work in general kind of exists on two very uh, opposite ends of a very broad spectrum, in that it's seen as being quite scary in terms of the robots are coming, AI is taking over jobs, human labor will be eroded. But uh, it also can be quite exciting, I suppose, in terms of a really flexible and exciting and promising workplace driven by more innovation. So I suppose, as Alton said, in terms of embracing change rather than going against it, the digital era, the digital era rather, is uh, is here and it's, it's it's becoming more and more prevalent in work and in every aspect of life, even with with our smartphones that we carry on with us every day. So I think it's 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 more of a case of working with it rather than against it. And this, I suppose, <clears throat> is particularly relevant moving forward as millennials are continuing to to enter the workforce. And I think, but by around next year, maybe early twenty twenty one, millennials will be the largest generation in the workforce. So typically. That, that generation would be more open to this technological change too. Okay. So maybe to you, Ronan, in terms of, you know, James has mentioned the extreme um, up side of things in terms of, you know, the rise of AIs, AI and, and robots in working society. Um, is this something we should be worried about? Or what are what are the aspects of this? So there is positives, but what what might be we worried about as well? I suppose not just looking at, at, at the robots in particular, but if you look at things like algorithmic management, big data, uh, even gender disparity, uh, I'd argue that's, that's something that we should be more worried about right now. So if you look at what organizations are doing now in the context of big data, if you if you were working in Harris Casino in Las Vegas, they actually have software now that if you're working as a card dealer or if you're working as a waiting staff, they have software that's able to digitize and analyze the extent to which you smile on a day-to-day basis. So that means then you come in the next morning and your boss can say, well, listen, Anthony, you didn't smile enough because they're able to link productivity to increase smiles. If you work for Bloomberg, every keystroke that you have is is, is recorded on your computer. Uh, there's there's a spin-off from MIT. Sociometric Solutions have developed these have developed digital badges that people wear at work. And what these digital badges do, they track the amount of of interactions that you have with other team members on a day-to-day basis. So at the end of the week, again, your boss, your organization can pull up a network map saying how many interactions you have uh, with different team members. And they do it on the basis that they can say that the, the more connections that you make on a daily or a weekly basis is linked to greater innovation. It's linked to, to greater productivity. But I would find that extremely concerning from a, from a HR viewpoint uh, in terms of what can be done with that data. If you look at other technological advancements such as Slack, so Slack is a productivity tool that, that's used by, by, I think, over 100 of the top 500 organizations in the world. They have over 100 million users. So this, you can actually get now an add-on to this software, it's called Vibe, which actually measures and quantifies the communication that takes place between employees on a day-to-day basis. And the this software is sold as something that gives you a much more accurate insight into employee engagement because it measures the actual language of communication that's taking place with employees on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but that essentially, it's it's all very it's all very big brother, and it, and it is it is quite quite worrying. So there, with these digital name ba- name badges, I would imagine the next logical step for uh, is to add microphones into that to actually assess what the and be able to quantify well, what is the language now of of uh, of highly functioning teams. Uh, 
so these are things that we can address right now. Uh, gender pay gap this is something that we can we can address right now. So rather than worrying about what might happen in, in 10, 15 years, uh, I think it, the, the onus is on organizations to actually be conscious and be more cognizant of what's happening today. So turning to you, Alton, Ronan has you know, flagged the piece around the, the potential amount of data that has been col- collected now, and that can that can have positive aspects in terms of being useful for innovations, as James has pointed out. But it does raise concerns potentially about how it's used. Would that be a concern that you think is something real in terms of you know all of this data being collected, being analysed, and being used to make whatever conclusions? Yeah, it's interesting. I was at a, a conference last week in Dublin, the HRIC conference, um, and one of the keynote speakers was Professor Dana Minbayeva um, from Copenhagen uh, Business School. Uh, and she said one of the big challenges, not just for the future, but right now, is not necessarily big data and gathering data, but what organizations are actually doing with the data. And she said that from her point of view, her perspective is that organizations are investing millions in gathering data but all kind of things like how often you smile or uh, your social interactions with your colleagues but she said a big question that organizations need to ask before they even gather the data is what do they actually want to use to use it or what do they actually want to do with it and she said from what she can see most organizations have huge banks of data that are just lying there kind of sullen underused kind of crying out to do something with me i can tell you something about our staff or i can tell you something about your company but the kind of the two issues she notices that organizations don't really know how to use it and they don't know what to use it for. Um, so I think Ron is absolutely right that there are you know, the positive aspects of having lots of information about people to use it in a you say proactive, positive way. But of course, there is the danger that you know it is kind of uh, this big brother. Everyone's watching you, and what what will this information actually be used for? And what do you know about me? Um, but I I actually think most organizations at the moment don't know what they actually want to do with all the data they have gathered. So that will be a, a big issue, I think, in the next 10, 15 years, the organization's relationship with the data they have gathered. So I guess a key piece of advice or recommendation for industry really is about needing to understand what questions they really want answered and what data they need then to support it's that. It's like any research project we would do. What question are we trying to find out before we even get the data? I mean, we come across students, or students they get their data and then they get their question afterwards, which obviously isn't very scientific. So organizations need to be more scientific and more logical. What questions are you trying to answer? And then you get the data to try and answer those questions. Okay, thanks. So maybe turning to you, James. So algorithmic management is is another topic that has come up, and I guess the rise of the gig economy. Um, it's gaining a lot of um, media attention from some of the the big names. Um, maybe you might just talk to me about what exactly is the gig economy. How big is it? Is it something that is that has become a phenomenon, or or is it less? I guess in the last decade or so, and particularly as the world of work has continued to change with some of the trends that we've just been discussing there, uh, the gig economy has really emerged as one of the key trends seen to be driving this change. So in terms of figures, uh, it's still quite small, relatively speaking. So sometimes figures can be uh, can be not misrepresented, but slightly larger if they include different types of work and so on. But we would be just looking at uh, based on looking at the online gig economy specifically, we would be looking 
looking at probably uh, 0.5 up to anywhere around 4.4 percent uh, rather of, of the workforce uh, particularly in the UK not so much in Ireland where, where, where these platforms wouldn't be as big but uh, looking at work in the gig economy specifically then, then and what it is I suppose we can find its roots in, uh, in in various forms of actual contingent work so we see similarities to the likes of um, temp work agency work CRRs contracts and so on and typically this work is uh, characterised as being neither full-time nor open-ended uh, it, it's very flexible hyper-flexible as we'd call it and there seems to be a general lack of commitment from the parties involved but at the same time <clears throat> despite all of these similarities we can still say that the gig economy does actually stand alone in presenting new forms of work and new challenges as it continues to grow. And I suppose one of the key debates here, uh, particularly in terms of the workplace, is that the vast majority of workers um, engaging in the gig economy are not actually classified as employees. They're seen as self-employed independent contractors. And then, of course, we've got loads of issues in terms of employment rights, lack of protections and benefits and, and, and so on, everything in that domain. Um, so if, if, if we were to describe it in, in a sentence, it's very difficult to, to describe it because work here isn't, it's not all the same, but we would, I suppose, call it a, a channel within the labour market, a new channel that would use online platforms to really uh, connect workers with clients and consumers through digital means. So usually via smartphone applications or, or apps, as we would just call them. Okay. So that's that's obviously that key piece again is technology, the apps and the online element. Um, and it's something obviously it's quite dynamic because I think you, you alluded to in terms of there's a lot of cases going across many jurisdictions in terms of this idea of employment rights, whether they're employees or not. Is there any level of consistency at this stage in terms of where courts are determining what side are they falling down on? Are these employees or not? Mm, yeah. So I suppose one of the like the interesting things about researching the gig economy is that every month or sometimes every week brings a new development in the area. So and what's really interesting, so as you mentioned, there are loads and loads and loads of cases proceeding through the courts, um, both at, at domestic and, and, and national and international levels. But what, what's interesting is that the outcomes are, are really uh, varied, once again, across regions. So in, in some jurisdictions, we're seeing um, courts siding with the, the employees and then with others, they're siding with the organisations. Um, and again, I suppose it, it all comes back to, um, as, as Rowan would have mentioned, their algorithmic management and the levels of control that are exercised by these apps in terms of uh, controlling workers, mediating workers and how they complete the work. So um, it, it comes down to, I think, labour laws and employment laws within your own specific region and how, how strict they are. Okay, so Ronan, algorithmic management, what is it? So in the context of I suppose, what James is talking about, we're, the algorithmic management in the gig economy is, so we would expect, and most of the jobs that we do today were managed by, by a human. We have our, our work allocation is decided by our boss. Our performance evaluation is carried out by our boss or our supervisor. Uh, in the gig economy, that's essentially been outsourced. It's done by algorithm. It's done by a piece of, uh, of software, of code. Uh, so, for example, to draw on what, what James is talking about, so if you hail a cab with Uber, it's the algorithm it, algorithm decides uh, depending on your rating depending on your proximity to the client who gets preference then to for the for that particular job the performance evaluation has been outsourced to the end users the customers so again if you take a, a cab at the end of the journey you rate the driver on a scale of one to five stars uh, if your rating falls below a certain uh, score you're then kicked off the platform without any recourse. So there's no, there's very little human interaction here. It's all been done by software, by the algorithm that that James referred to, and and I suppose that 
that raises significant questions. So what's the role of, of HR in all of this? So what role do they play? Who's actually deciding these algorithms? Uh, if there's, there's been numerous instances where people have had, uh, where, where drivers with these uh, gig, gig organizations have had issues, they, uh, they can't get hold of a human at the, at the end of the line. They're given a, uh, an email address that they can raise queries with. So that, uh, that, that is quite concerning. If, if organizations are willing to ab- abdicate their responsibility for what we would understand to be the, the kind of traditional core HR functions, going down to uh, reward management, again, it's decided by the app. It's decided uh, by the the number of rides that, that that you've taken, so it does. I suppose it like it, I suppose one of the things that I'd be concerned about here broadly in the gig economy is if if you look at again just drawing an say for example an Uber Uber driver in London, the the barriers to entry are quite low. So all I need to become an Uber driver is a driver's license and a car, and car insurance. Now. Uh, a black cab driver in London, for them to to be qualified as a taxi driver, they need to spend, on average, they spend four or five years doing a test and preparing for a test called the knowledge, where they need to be able to memorise every single street, every single landmark location in London. So the, the amount of skills, the amount of time that they've spent developing these skills is quite high. Now, so the flip side of that then is that there's now more people taking taxi rides, well, taking uh, Uber rides and taxi rides in London than ever before. So it's fantastic for the end consumer because the the prices to get to take an Uber are on average about half of what it takes to get a, a black cab ride. So the but that then raises questions as to well, what price do we put on people's on people's skills? Do I want to pay more for somebody who has invested minimum four or five years developing their skills, or do I want to pay fifty percent less for someone who uh, hasn't put in or hasn't developed their skills to the same extent? So it it kind of raises I suppose concerns as to the the social contract surrounding what we mean. By, by work and also what, what is the meaning of work on that point um, <laughs> I'll pass that over maybe because I think that is a it's a profound question but it, it is an important question in terms of when we think about um, you know there's a lot of talk about what decent work is and the focus on decent work so what is the meaning of work uh, Milton well there's been academic research on the meaning of work for 60-70 years but particularly in the last quarter century you know traditionally uh, when people look at the meaning of work they're looking at what values were people looking to uh, achieve uh, or what values were people bringing to the workplace and things like uh, security and achievement and benevolence. And they were very, very important 25 years ago and they still are very, very important today. But actually, in the last five or six years, there's been a movement away from this idea of meaningful work and actually more towards meaningful lives, okay? That people need to try and achieve a meaningful life and what kind of contribution does a person's job or does a person's organization uh, make to this sense of having a meaningful life? Um, so what can society what can society do to ensure work is contributing to a, a person's sense of well-being? I was at a conference last year and someone raised someone asked a very interesting question. They said the way work is going in certain uh, disciplines and in certain industries 
that do we want our children, they ask the question, do we want our children to have a two-hour commute to work for a zero-hour contract? That that isn't a very nice social contract. That is, that is work, that, if that is your job or that is your work experience, then you are in a very unpleasant, uh, you are in a very an unpleasant uh, contract. Um, so issues like work-life balance are going to be very important in the next 20 years. Uh, this sense of belongingness, this idea of making a difference in your job or making a difference to um, wider society. Um, and it's the idea of trying to have autonomy, not being under pressure, having a kind of a varied work and a varied career. And these are the things that, pe- uh, that people are going to be looking for in the next 15, 20 years. And they're going to be the foundations or the, the kind of the, the pillars of this social contract. Uh, it's not necessarily meaningful work, and that's important, but it's also meaningful life. And what is the role of a person's job? in this idea of carving out a meaningful life and what are the, resp- what are the responsibilities on organizations and HR and leaders of organizations and society in general, what's their uh, responsibility in terms of actually helping an employee to achieve this meaningful life? That's the big challenge. It's a very interesting question, but I think that's going to be uh, a dominant aspect of uh, this idea of the social contract in the next 15 years or so. James, if I can just maybe follow on with that to you in the context of gig work, and you know, so I guess does the does the perceived does the potential flexibility that I suppose talks to to Alton's point, but does also the I suppose the or for me looking in, it seems to be that lack of social interaction that traditional work would generally bring. Why why do people, you know, what does research tell us? But why do people engage in gig work? Mm. So it, it's it's a really interesting question, and I suppose to date there isn't a huge amount of of, of research in terms of the the motivators for for these workers and why they're doing it. So uh, what is there? Uh, we can gather that, as I said, there's not just one type of gig work, but there's also not just one type of gig worker in, in, in that regard. So some people may be doing it as a full-time thing, a full-time gig, if you want to call it that, uh, in that they're relying on this income and they're relying on this work solely to to, to, to uh, balance their lives. Others may have a full-time job, or if they're living in a, a busier city, more expensive city, they may be working with uh, Uber or Deliveroo on the side on weekends or, or in the evenings to, to, to boost up their income. Um, so it, it's really interesting in that sense, look at it from a motivation in terms of doing it. And in line with that, then, and as Alton said, with the social contract, um, with your motivations for doing the work, perhaps in your expectations in terms of what you want from it, do you crave the social interaction if you're doing it as a full time thing? Whereas if you're just doing it two evenings a week for a couple of hours, do you really care uh, if, if you have this 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 um perfect workplace that, that, that we all aspire to. Flexible work practice has been talked about a lot, but it seems as if a lot of organisations haven't got very far. So I guess this gives, at least on perceptional terms, that it gives that greater flexibility. And it, it may be part, the rise of the gig economy could be partly because of the failure of traditional organisations and work to, to really look at how they can offer a better way or a more flexible way of doing yeah, jobs. Yeah, I think that goes back to my earlier point of, of efficiency is going to be hugely important for organizations and it obviously is very important today, but the idea of working uh, smarter, being more efficient, and that's maybe an idea of reducing the working week. Now, that, way, that won't work for every organization, but just even the idea that organizations are potentially open to this idea is an indication that organizations are now aware that they have to be more efficient, they have to be more flexible, that, as you said, maybe the traditional way of doing things isn't going to last. Uh, I just One other thing as well, uh, as kind of a takeaway for any students listening to this particular podcast is, well, 
how is your work going to play out in the next 15, 20 years? And our advice to them would be, and this, I say this to all, to all my students, is that you kind of have to make it work for yourself. It's not going to fall on your lap. You have to be a lot more proactive. And Rona mentioned there about kind of lifelong learning that it's the idea that if you leave college or leave university or when you graduate that, you know, I finished learning now, I, just, I get a job. But if you want to a career, if you want to be successful, if you want to last in the future work environment, you have to be engaging in lifetime learning, and you have to be a lot more proactive in terms of managing your own career. And I think that's I think that's advice that can be applied or given to pretty much every student in in any discipline in UCC at the moment. Because organisations tend to focus very much on job specific skills, uh, which is fine for roles employees are doing are currently doing or are doing today, but that won't help them advance their careers. So by engaging in whether it's on the job learning, whether it's it's formal education in a setting like uh, like a university, that allows people to develop transferable skills that can be used in a wide, in a wide range of different contexts and really put them in a strong position in the labour market. And what's also important then as well is the ability to be able to articulate what skills and competencies you have. Uh, as a result of doing a particular course or program. Okay, so I just want to thank each of you for uh, coming in and giving your insights today. That's all we have time for on this episode of Insights, the Cubs Business Podcast. My thanks to Ronan Carberry, Alton Sherman and James Duggan of the Department of Management and Marketing and HR Research Centre in Cubs for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it and got an insight into how Cubs lecturers, researchers and graduates are making an impact in the wider world. Don't forget you can subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts or Spotify. And for more information, go to CubsUCC.com. I'm Anthony MacDonald. Thanks for listening and join me next time for more Cubs Business Insights.